The question that we're aiming to answer today is, what is a church? And with that question, I'm not looking for answers such as, well, the church began on Pentecost, or what is the relationship between Israel and the church? I'm simply asking a very practical question, what is a local church? What are we supposed to be doing as a church? How do we do what we're supposed to be doing? How do I plug into that? And so we're going to be looking at many different passages. I've put many of them up on the screen for you this morning. Why are we taking time to study the nature of the church? Well, for several reasons. Number one, over the past few years, a number of people have joined our church, and it would be wise for us to make sure we're all facing the same direction. A second reason is that when COVID hit, we all experienced a disruption in church life. We didn't physically meet for nine or 10 weeks, I believe it was, back in 2020. Uh, but we could all tell that that wasn't normative. Uh, we opened the doors, folks came back. Uh, it was a gracious attitude as folks came back. But what we saw is that during COVID, many churches, uh, especially I would say mega churches, reported that after the doors were opened, uh, services resumed, uh, yet many people remained home, and something called online church really took off. Fifteen years ago, online church, we would have kind of looked awkwardly at somebody and said, what do you mean by that? But now many churches have this slant that you can be part of us, just as much a part of us, online. Is this the new and popular thing to do for churches? Should we be encouraging it? Is it biblical? Uh, there's also the practice of a church. Another reason why we should be studying this. Some churches um, aim to attract people through different means. Um, maybe a more contemporary, cultural um, maybe high-impact sort of attraction. Other churches are very liturgical, um, solemn in nature. What should you expect when you attend a church? There are churches that believe that the Word of God is true from cover to cover, and then there are so-called churches that gather and believe in only portions of the Bible. We see those churches in our community. And so you ask the, we're asking the question, what is a biblical church? And is every building in the Tri-Cities that has the name church on its sign, is it a biblical church? And we're not so much comparing ourselves to them, but you can't help but wonder, is there something that should be distinctly different about a church that follows the Bible, a biblical church? And yes, there should be. Like, if the Bible is out in front of us leading us, this should mark who we are. This, the Word of God should characterize who we are. So it's good for us to go back and ask this question, what is a local church? How should we be functioning? So the outline on your handout is broken down very simply into two sections. And the first section is just a question. What is a church? What is a church? I'm going to spend very little time on this section and more time on the second section. I'll give that to you when we get there. Okay, in your English-speaking Bibles, you will see the term church or churches approximately 107 times. This term, church, 
can be used or broken down into two different ways or two different terms. First is simply what we call the universal church. Let me give you passages and then an explanation about what the universal church is. Ephesians 5 verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, he didn't give himself up for a church in that verse. He gave himself up for the church. Matthew 16, verse 18, another understandable, popular passage. Uh, Jesus comes to Peter and he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And again, just looking at the term there, the phrase Jesus was saying that he would build my church, not simply a church. So when we see this here, the Ephesians 5 and the Matthew 16, there's this big picture sense. This is the universal church. The universal church, we could say, is all those who have by faith laid hold of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They are in the body of Christ. They are Christians. They can be in India this morning. They can be in Antarctica this morning. Christians everywhere around the world make up this body called the universal church. We all belong to that if we have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, there's the universal church, and we're not focusing on that this morning, we're focusing on the local church. There is the local church, that's letter B in your outline, and there are plenty of examples of local churches in scripture. I just grabbed a few of them, threw them up on the screen for you. Let me just show these to you so you can see examples of local churches in the Bible. Acts 13, verse one. Now there were in the church at Antioch, that's a specific place, a specific gathering of people, there are these prophets and teachers, there's Barnabas, Simeon, who is also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. You see actual people in this local church at Antioch. Acts 18, verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So here's another location, Caesarea, a town like Grand Haven, and in that town, there was a church there. Romans 16, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a deaconess of the church at Sancria. So there's the church, there's a person, there's a location. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, for in the first place, speaking of the church at Corinth, when you come together, okay, so here's a togetherness, as a church. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, to the churches of Galatia. Galatia is a region just north of the Mediterranean. And he's saying, now to all these little churches, these local churches, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about the seven churches of Revelation. Those are specific local churches made up of people with those churches had a characteristic to them, and Jesus was responding to each of those churches. So what is these things, this local church? There's no place in the Bible where you can go and find a definition of what a local church is. It's not like the dictionary where you can go there, and here is this extended definition. So what we're doing is we're 
grabbing portions of Scripture and saying, we see this as being characteristic of a local church. Now, I am going to use a definition. Uh, It's by Jonathan Lehman, who is a scholar on the local church. I emailed him this week, and I said, you have taught me through your writings so much about the local church, works for Nine Marks Ministries. Um, May I use your definition and your material? He said, absolutely. That's why we're here. So this is Jonathan Lehman. He came here for our men's conference back in 2020. Here's a definition, and then we'll, we'll use this to study the text, okay? So what is a local church? A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Now, let me read it again. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. So there are four essential characteristics. We're going to cover two of them this week, and the aim is to cover the following two next week. Um, If we look at these four characteristics, just in your mind for a moment, imagine a square. This is a rectangle. A rectangle is fine. In order to have a rectangle, you have to have four corners to it. If I take out one of these corners, uh, it no longer is a rectangle. It becomes something altogether different. It's triangular in nature. If you leave the four corners... Now you have what's necessary to make up a rectangle. As we look at this definition, we're saying there's four essential characteristics. If you take one of those characteristics out, you're going to be missing really what a church should be. So we're looking at these four characteristics. Number one, a group of Christians. Number two, who regularly gather in Christ's name. Number three, to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Number four, through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. So let's move into this. Point number two is simply this. Four essential characteristics of a local church. And you could maybe put two because we're covering two this week and two next week. So what's the first one from our definition? First essential characteristic is a local church is a group of Christians. That's letter A. A local church is a group of Christians. A church must be made up of Christians. Um, But in order for someone to be a Christian, they must be transformed by the gospel. So we're linking gospel here with who we are as Christians. And that's where 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 comes in, as Jeff read it earlier. If you got your Bibles open there, here's what Peter wrote. He said, once you were not a people, but now presently you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So there's just two descriptions here of a Christian in 1 Peter 2.10. Uh, The first one is, you have become God's people. 
And the second one that is related to that is you have received mercy. You've become something that you weren't before. You've become God's people and you have received something that you didn't have before. You have God's mercy. Now this language that Peter is using is rich language and it travels all the way back to the Old Testament prophet named Hosea. Um, God is coming to Israel during Hosea's time, and Israel has wandered away from God. They've abandoned the covenant with God. They're in sin, and God has a strong message for them to show how he is viewing them right now. And in order to show them this strong perspective that God has, he, he gives them this example through the means of at least two children who were born. God said to Hosea, I want you to name two children, and the names of those children are going to be reflective of who my people are. So Hosea chapter 1, verse 6, Hosea's wife, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, that's Hosea, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. I want them to understand this so much that you, Jose, you have to name your daughter this way. Why do you name your daughter No Mercy? Because this is God's message to all of you, Israel. He had a second child, Hosea 1, verses 8 and 9. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name Not My People, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. You're not walking with me. You're religious in nature. They were going through temple acts and sacrifices, as we see in Hosea. But their hearts were far from God. There was sin that was in their lives. So Israel needed to realize who they were. They were people who were not receiving the mercy of God. They had walked away from the covenant, so they're not the people of God. But then God comes to them in chapter 2, verse 23, where they were and and look at what he says. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And you are my people shall say, you are my God. And so here are people who God is saying, you're not my people. But I'm going to make you my people, not because of what you've done, but because of what I'm going to do for you. I am going to pour out mercy on you, and I'm going to gather you to myself so you will be characterized by mercy, and you will be known as being a people who belong to me. And Peter picks up that language in 1 Peter 2, and he says of Christians, that was you. You were all not God's people at one point, and you were people who had not received mercy, but God came to you and he said, you're mine, you're going to be my people now, and you are going to be mine through the mercy that I give to you. So, on August 15th, 1979, something amazing happened in the world. I was born. <laughs> now, I had been alive for nine months previous to that time. Nine months, I was alive. I was there. But on August 15th, 1979, a new life began for me. I went from darkness to light. 
I went from not being held by my parents to being in their arms. I went from not making noise to babbling and talking, from weak to strong. All of us in here this morning have had that life-transforming experience. Before birth, you were a human. You were alive. But something radically changed in your life the day you were born, and you can't go back either. And by the way, you didn't determine it either. Like you didn't say, I'm, I'm coming into existence and I'll be born that day. There are several unborn people among us this morning, even right now. They're here. They're with us. Rachel, got one right in your tummy. Hannah's got a couple in her tummy. Stomach. Shouldn't talk like a four-year-old. <laughs> Womb. Like God is at work and here are young people here. There might be more that I don't know about or have forgotten about, but there's something different about us from them, right? Why? Because we're alive. We're born. We're here. And this is what Peter is getting at. At one point, you were one way, and now, irreversibly, you are another way because this is what God has done. He has made you his people. You're in this category over here. You have received his mercy and Ephesians 2 shows us this mercy as well. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Look who we were before. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But here's the weight. God, he was the one who is rich in mercy. Here's this mercy event again. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that's before, then he made us alive together with Christ. So Christians, we were all spiritually dead. Once we were spiritually dead, we were living life apart from God. We were in our sin but then God came to us and he was rich in mercy with the great love that he loved us with. He made us alive. And this is the gospel. This is what makes us Christians. This is how we went from point A in our previous life before Christ to point B where we are now. This is the gospel that God being rich in mercy extended his mercy to us. And through Jesus, we are made alive. Churches are made up of people who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are different. If the gospel is not preached and not received, no matter what is on the sign, it's not a local church. The local church is made up of Christians who have been saved by the gospel. That's an essential characteristic for us. Now, if that's true... There are applications and implications for us. Number one is we would value the gospel. We would say this is of great importance to us. It's of great importance to the world. It's the greatest thing that we can give to the world. 
We can give other tangible physical things, but this is the greatest thing that we can give to the world. So we would value the truth of the gospel because it brought us into life. It's what changed our lives. So just a question, do you treasure the gospel? Personally, is that just a thought um, with little value? Or is it really, you know, this is of eternal value in my life? There are so many things that are vying for our affections. And it's right for us to have affections about things. It's right for us to be desirous about things. God has made us with desires. Where is the gospel in your desires? Is it of value to you that Jesus came and died for you? It should be. Second application is we want to proclaim the gospel clearly. We should proclaim this clearly. Hopefully you'll notice through our singing, there are phrases or even whole songs that talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ where he came and he died for us and was willing to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins upon himself so that we could be sinless before the eyes of God so that we could have his righteousness. In our sermons, we talk about the gospel. So we went through Ecclesiastes. It doesn't mention the name of Jesus one time, right? But we know how the Bible is put together for us who are living on this side of the cross where the gospel is for us that we know that to live life under the hand of God and to appreciate it, we have to have that perspective. And that only comes when we're alive through Jesus. So we'll talk about the gospel when we're in the Old Testament. Third, we protect the purity of the gospel among us. Uh, just a simple application for us as a church. That's why every time someone joins our church, we want you, the congregation, to hear them share their testimony of faith in Jesus. They're always supposed to share a verse that says, I believe that verse, and it points to the gospel. It points at, that's how I know that I'm a Christian. As pastors, we interview each of those people who come into membership and at times we have heard things where we have had to say, hang on just a second, um, we need to hear more. And so we aim to guard the door before we present people to you or recommend people to you for membership. So just in short, um, a local church, you are a group of people who collectively, you know, in this room right now are the people of God who have received the mercy of God. A local church is made up of Christians. Let's move on to the second corner. Second essential characteristic of a church is this, that a church regularly gathers in Christ's name. We talked about Christ in point number one, so the emphasis here is on the regular gathering. A church regularly gathers. As you look through the scripture, you see that God's people have always regularly gathered. Israel had regular gatherings for feasts, for meetings at the synagogues, at the temple, for the reading of the law. In Jesus' ministry, it was crucial that people were gathering together physically as he taught them, as he gathered his disciples and prayed with them. He would gather crowds for sermons. It doesn't stop here. You see, even in the future, where there is a great gathering of Christ's church, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, God gathers his people and he will gather his people. But you see this now in the life of the church. 
Now, let me again just point you to several passages throughout Scripture that describe this or implore this. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we'll be preaching a sermon to them. Together to break bread, Paul talked to them. This has the idea of probably preaching a sermon to them. And so Luke is recording this and saying, hey, first day of the week, this is when we gather. Um, I didn't list this on the screen, but 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and five times he uses this phrase, when you gather together, when you gather together, when you gather together, the implication is obvious, you need to be gathering together. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, a writer of Hebrews says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So you see that one of the absolute, one of the essential characteristics for a local church is that we regularly gather together. And you could say it this way, in order to be a healthy member of a local church, you must be willing and making an effort to physically and regularly gather together. Why? Because it's Biblical, and God gathers his people together. We all felt and even continue to feel some of the COVID disappointments. Um, recently, I've heard a family in our neighborhood even, and even a family in the church that somebody gets COVID, uh, you don't want the domino chain reaction to occur, and so you end up quarantining. And so um, you go down to the bedroom or you're in the basement for X amount of days. And to join the family, what happens? They pull out the phones and they're on FaceTime. And there's the family that's eating upstairs and there's the patient downstairs. And the patient downstairs, after a while, is like, the break was nice, but I'm done with this break. Like, I want to be back together with the family. I want to be at the table. I want to be enjoying meals. I want to laugh together. I want to participate. It's best to be together. Um, families often will feel that way. After a time away, they're saying, I want to be back together. In our culture, there's this other sort of online attendance that happens with online school. Um, a lot of times in college, you have to check in online in order to meet the attendance quota. And so the student just sort of checks in and might black out their screen so that they can be doing all kinds of other things that are going on. They don't know anybody else in the class. They're meeting with a group in Phoenix to do school and just get the credits. But... The idea is, I just have to do this. I don't want to do it, but I have to. And sometimes people look at church now in our sort of contemporary era and say, well, I don't really want to be there, but there's this conscience thing in my mind that says I should just beam in and check it out. And then I can beam out and be done for the week, check my box, and I'm done. God has so designed the local church that we need to realize that we are to be a gathering body, a regular gathering body to carry out the acts of worship 
and the encouragement of one another. Online streaming, it's on this morning. I see the blue light. It's for those who can't be here. But it falls short. It's not church. The church is the called out ones who are gathered together, physically gathering, and we are worshiping the Lord together because he tells us to come together. Now, why gather? Does the Bible give us reasons? Yes, it does. Several reasons. Number one is the gathering is a means that God uses to encourage us. The gathering, the physical gathering, is a means that God uses to encourage us. And we read Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, where we're to be encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Um, Recently, I was talking with a friend out of state, nobody that you would know, and he's just so beat up by life, Um, going through the Sunday through Saturday and just worn out by life. It would be nice if he could walk into his local church gathering and see a brother there, see a sister there. Um, A brother comes up to him and says, tell me, generally or specifically, how can I be praying for you? Um, There are people in this section, this section, and this section who are beat up by life. And one of the natural crossing points that God has designed for us is this physical gathering where we would come and not just come sit down and go, but where we would open up the word, where we would sing together, and where there would be this community that takes place that can only happen through the physical gathering. I need encouragement. And I don't get encouragement the same way when I have to quarantine, sitting down in my basement, watching a flat screen on the cinder block wall. I need to run into people who are going to put their hand on my shoulder and say something to me. Just seeing your face, being together. And many of you know that. Like, online church just doesn't cut it at all. It's an okay resource for sick people, but... It's not the best option at all. The best option is the gathering, and we need this. I think about a guy like Don Prince. He's in Florida. He might be watching today. Get in church, Don, today. (laughs) Don will sit me down, and he'll say, I just want you to know, young man, I love you. I can't get that at home. You can't get that at home. You can't get that eye-to-eye contact with somebody and talk about life. Uh, We're going to be meeting in our small group afterwards. Regularly, uh, the patriarch in our group is Jake Turnbow. And he'll sit down and we'll talk about life and we'll hear about his life in Siberia, 17 years in Siberia. If you haven't heard it, it's just encouraging. And regularly at the end of that, he's talking, that was all God. That was all God working us through that and leading us through that. I can't get that in a basement staring at a flat screen. You see, the togetherness of the church around the word of God, this is important. This preaching moment is important. Hopefully you're encouraged by this. There's also this one another before and after where we need it. 
So the gathering is a means that God uses to encourage us. Second is this. The gathering provides a visual demonstration of God's power. Physical gathering provides a visual demonstration of God's power. Think about this. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You've been changed, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything of your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. I love that language where he says, with one mind you are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Where does that take place? That takes place when we're gathered together and you can think about it sort of metaphorically where we're walking like this with our arms linked, striving side by side saying, okay, here comes another week, we're going to face it. When we were out in South Dakota last summer, we stayed in a couple different campgrounds, and right outside the second campground, um, down in this sort of large meadow, was this old fort. It was called the Gordon Stockade. It was an outpost back in the 1870s. A lot of gold seekers used it, and then the American military used it. Now, I think back to the 1870s, people on horseback coming through these hills and all of a sudden seeing this fort that's present. And it might have had 60, 70 soldiers in it at one time. When they see that fort, what does that fort represent? It's an outpost. The, The American military in the 1870s might be centralized at one location or have more soldiers lined up at one location. But here is this stockade out in the middle of nowhere, but there's a flag that's flying and it represents a greater power over here. It's an outpost where soldiers are going back and forth doing the work that they need to do. And and so it's physically present as a representation of a greater power. And that's the local church. When we're gathered, we are a visual demonstration of God's power and strength. God's power and strength powerfully came into your life and took you from not being his people to being his people. God changed your eternity forever. And so when we gather together, there's this visual demonstration for us and for the world. For us, it's a reminder, yes, God's word is true. I'm gathering together with brothers and sisters of like faith. We're headed to heaven together. And for the world, it's also a reminder, like, those people, and who knows what they think, crackpots, I don't know. But it's a demonstration that they're serious. As long as that church is meeting, there's something going on there, and God uses it in the lives of others. So when a non-Christian walks into a service, and hears the gospel of love, Jesus loves you and laid down his life for you. And then he sees people, or she sees people, intentionally loving one another it sends a message of power. It's a demonstration that God is at work. Third reason is that when we gather here, uh, we worship God collectively. 
The regular gathering of the local church is when we worship God. So Ephesians 5, 19 and 20. Paul writes that we are to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's very interesting. Like, a lot of times we think about our singing as singing to God, which it is. But you see here that Paul is using this as a means of encouragement to address one another about the value of God. And I'm pretty sure Paul had the local church in mind here because you don't see this taking place, you know, outside the church, the regular gathering. And so when we come together, what we're aiming to do with our singing is sing to one another about our value of God, about our worship of God. And so we're all participating in it together. And some have asked, hey, what about solos, duets? Nothing wrong with them, but we get 52 weeks a year, 52 hours, half hour is given over to singing. Let's use that collectively to fulfill Ephesians 5, 19 and 20. We regularly gather together because God commands us. And through the gathering, we encourage and are encouraged. We're a demonstration of God's power and we're corporately worshiping him together. So let me close with this. How can we make the most of our gatherings? And let me nudge us, not trying to make this a legalistic practice here, but just let the Spirit lead you in this. Practical ideas. Number one, you can pray. Saturday evenings especially, you can pray for yourself, your heart. You can pray for others. Second, you can plan. Uh, Typically, we go through a book in our services, a book of the Bible, and you know what paragraph is coming next. You could listen to that on the way to work, the next paragraph, and just be asking God to open your eyes, open your heart to that passage. A third thing that you can do is you can protect. Many of you have work tomorrow morning at 7.30 or so, and somebody says, hey, do you want to meet for breakfast at 8 o'clock? And you say, I can't, I got to work. Like, I protect my work. You're protecting your commitment to work. Somebody comes to you on Wednesday night and says, hey, you want to start a movie at 11.30? You say, ah, that wouldn't be smart. I got to work tomorrow morning. You're protecting your functionality at work. I think you see the application, right? Um, Protect church. Fit things around the important gathering. We don't fit the gathering into things. It leads the way for us. So... Let me just conclude by review. The first corner of the local church is we are Christians who value the gospel. We've been changed by the gospel. Second corner is that we regularly gather together and we prioritize it. And let's just say that by God's help, we're aiming to be a biblical local church that glorifies God. Next week, we'll hit the following two points, protection of one another and the regular practices that should be observed in the church. But by God's power, by his help, Let's aim to be a local church that glorifies him. Let's pray.